Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin, and welcome back to Middle Earth. I've been releasing monthly episodes going back through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings for all our $5 and above patrons. Last month, I covered Book 6, Chapter 2, The Land of Shadow, and this month, oh boy, this month we have Book 6, Chapter 3, Mount Doom. I just want to say up front, there will be no new Lord of the Rings episode next month. I'm just heading into a busy couple months, so no new Lord of the Rings episode next month, but a month after that, in late May, I will be back with Book 6, Chapter 4, The Field of Cormallon, and then go on to wrap up the uh, last handful of chapters in Lord of the Rings. But anyway, Mount Doom. Been waiting a long time for this one. Here we are at last, the end of the road. The goal of the journey, the climax of the story. The turning point in the eternal struggle between light and darkness. Tolkien has been building up to this moment since the second chapter of the story. We have arrived at Mount Doom, the birthplace of the One Ring and the only place it can be destroyed. And so it is. Just not how we might have expected. Tolkien shapes this climactic chapter as a crucible, in both physical and philosophical terms. This is where both the story and its central characters are broken down and remade. Like all of Lord of the Rings, this is Tolkien's tribute to and update of the epics and poetry that inspired him, although this is less Beowulf and more T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. The shadows and flames of Mordor become a spiritual gauntlet, not only for Frodo and Sam, but for Gollum, and also for the unseen army of the West at the Black Gate. Aragorn and Gandalf and everyone else prepared to sacrifice themselves in order to make this moment possible. There is no turning back. It's the literal precipice of doom. And it begins with Sam thinking about a very different place, Lothlorien. He wishes he was there, he wishes the elves could guide him. He's invoking Lothlorien to guard them, like you would call on the muses at the start of an epic, like how, how the Odyssey starts, or in a more ironic way, how James Joyce's Ulysses starts. And beyond the Greek influence, there were Christian echoes here as well. They're about to cross the plain of Gorgoroth, which sounds a lot like Golgotha, also known as Calvary, the hill where Christ was crucified, or so the story goes. That hill was shaped like a skull, and that seems like a good description of Mordor. And Frodo was very much a Christian martyr figure in this chapter, or at least for most of this chapter. You can easily imagine him like Christ hanging in between his two fellow victims, and Frodo is hanging here in between Sam and Gollum. No light reaches the hobbits here in the land of the dead. The air is chill and yet stifling, Tolkien writes. The land is dreary, flat, and drab-hued. The stones bite into them like teeth, and the mountains loom like ghosts. They're going off to join the dead. That's what Sam realizes here. The hard math is finally catching up with him. They just do not have the supplies to make it there and back again. And for a while, he just sits there in that desperate state, not only foodless but houseless. This is how he's going to die. The opposite of the home and hearth of the Shire. And this is where Sam decides he has a crush on Rosie Cotton. If that is the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton and her brothers, and the gaffer. And Tolkien uh, brought this up in a letter to his publisher, Milton Waldman. He wrote, I think the simple, rustic love of Sam and his Rosie, nowhere elaborated, is absolutely essential to the study of his, the chief hero's, character. And to the theme of the relation of ordinary life, breathing, eating, working, begetting, and quests, sacrifice, causes, and the longing for elves and sheer beauty. 
So you have this contrast between Sam's uh, love for Rosie and his devotion to Frodo. Those are kind of his his two loves in this chapter. And and Rosie is associated with the Shire, and Frodo, who is forgetting with the Shire, is associated now with, with Mordor and, and their dreadful duty. And that, that does, I think, tie very effectively into Sam's uh, humility, which is one of his, his main character traits. It, you know, this stands in for everything he has, he has sacrificed for Frodo, but also everything Frodo isn't going to get to have. I think it is, is less satisfying when you think in terms of a more, a more modern understanding of character arcs and character development that this is just kind of suddenly Sam's motivation that pops up again at the end. But Tolkien, again, is working in more kind of epic mythical language in, in which this makes a lot more sense. Sam's not afraid to die, but he knows that he knows that he's not supposed to, that Gandalf wouldn't have sent them if there was no chance and they were just going to take this suicide mission. There was supposed to be a return, like there was for Odysseus. I mean, Bilbo. Everything went wrong, Sam thinks, when Gandalf went down in Moria. He wasn't supposed to. And there are multiple layers of irony here. We, the reader, we know that Gandalf got better and that he is actually glad that Sam alone went with Frodo. And we also know that he didn't seem to actually have a plan as to how to get to Mount Doom. Remember way back in book two when he was laying out the map of the quest to the fellowship and he was like, okay, we got to get through the gap of Rohan and then we got to get to the, to the MMUL and then, and he stopped and Pippin was like, okay, yeah. And then Gandalf was like, eh, we go to the end in the end. And I think he wasn't just concealing the difficulty of their mission from them. I think he was concealing the reality that he didn't have a plan for how to get past the Black Gate because as we saw in book four, that's impossible. The only reason the hobbits got this far at all is because they ran into Gollum, and Frodo trusted him. That's the only reason they're here, even though that trust was betrayed in Shelob's lair. So they don't really need Gandalf. They need Sam. He's the truly essential one. And I love the passage where Tolkien describes him turning to steel the way Sansa does in A Storm of Swords. To My skin is turning from porcelain to ivory to steel. Something very similar happens to Sam here, where he realizes they're screwed and just goes, Okay. Well, that simplifies things. Now I just have to see how far we get. And that kind of just settles on him and it gives them this, this strength. Tolkien made very explicit that, that Sam was a reflection of the English soldier. He says, of the privates and Batman I knew in the 1914 war and recognized as so far superior to myself. And Tolkien scholar John Garth has argued that Sam's relationship to Frodo is similar to that of the working class enlisted men who were, were orderlies, Batman as they called them, to officers in the British army during the war. Not that kind of Batman, the other kind. Tolkien's respect for those men was based on their ability to make it through the daily hardships of war and still show great courage in battle just for the sake of their duty. They were common men from rural or working class backgrounds. They had volunteered for this for the good of their country, not for glory or gain, at least as far as Tolkien thought about it. And all they wanted was to come home at the end. And Garth argues, and I think convincingly, that of all the characters in Lord of the Rings, this describes Sam, whose love of his home and the simple pleasures of his life sustain him throughout the quest as he pines for the Shire. And like a good soldier, Sam has developed this, this uh, strong logistical eye. He takes a look at the plain of Gorgoroth, and he sees that, while it looks like completely flat from afar, it's actually covered in holes. It's like the surface of the moon. And he thinks, yeah, that's going to be good to hide in, but really, even more importantly for us, that's going to slow us down. We, we don't have energy to spare. And so they set out on the road, the road heading east right towards the Dark Tower, with the plan of eventually turning south to get to Mount Doom. And they don't encounter anyone along the road, which is not what you might expect, given how many orcs they had to dodge around and finally run into in the last chapter. That previous chapter was all about Mordor as a society, as an ecosystem. But everyone else in that chapter was going the opposite direction, to confront Aragorn and company at the Black Gate. They're going the other way, so now Mordor is empty. It's more abstract, more haunted. There's only just sounds at night. You never see what's making them, you just hear them. The only company they have 
is Sauron. A power with a capital P, as Tolkien writes it, a ghostly presence in your mind, totally transcending the physical needs dragging down the hobbits. But Sauron has the drawbacks of being a disembodied brain along with the benefits. He's pure paranoia, turning inward on himself. He can't distract himself by eating or sleeping or shitting or fucking. This chapter is a sensory immersion in the soul of the Dark Lord. And Tolkien describes him here as an oncoming wall of night. Sauron at this point is something more than a tyrant. He's anti-light, almost anti-matter. He's, he's looking for the anti-life equation like uh, Darkseid from DC. It's a reversal of creation, like he's going to rewind to the Big Bang and snuff out that first light. Let there be darkness instead. The symbol of the eye is matched by the ring, the big abstract circle and the small concrete one. The same consciousness working on Frodo from within and without. It takes everything away. It even takes language away. Sam at one point when he's trying to process Frodo's feelings just says, talk won't mean nothing. Words are emptied out, like Mordor is being emptied out. You're just rubbed raw until you're reduced to your component parts, your ability to keep going. All the flowery dialogue Tolkien is so famous or infamous for, depending on your preferences, it gives way to incremental action. Step by step by agonizing step. Like the other Sam in his first chapter in the Storm of Swords where he's just sobbing, Sam took another step. That's what I think about with this chapter now. And Tolkien has, has one foot in realism and one foot in abstraction here. It's very real in terms of that they're so thirsty and they're just crawling along these rocks and they got to deal with the weather. But there's also something very unreal, very nightmarish about Mordor. Like Sam just sees shapes in the night and he hears wild noises like monsters are having a big party. It's like, it's like a much scarier version of the, the elf parties that were being thrown in Mirkwood in The Hobbit. But when Sam wakes up, he sees nothing, not even like the footprints or remains of anything. So is it his imagination? Or maybe we're in this more abstract, strange part of Mordor, closer to Sauron, where the spirits dwell. Mordor was the land where the shadows lie, after all, and maybe some of those shadows aren't even cast by anything. The only physical thing here is the eyes. No, not Sauron's eye, but a pair of small eyes following them. It's Gollum hunting them down, both externally and internally. In a way, throughout this chapter, Gollum is emerging from within Frodo. So eventually the hobbits have to leave the road and cross the desert to Mount Doom. And it's ironic that the road to the Dark Tower, the Dark Tower, the worst place in Middle-earth, that's what saves them. Because it's, it's part of the infrastructure, there's still a little water they can find that was intended for orcs going around Mordor. But Sam knows they're not going to be so lucky in the wasteland. Fuming, barren, and ash-ridden, as Tolkien describes it. And speaking of wasteland, yeah, coming back to this chapter, I felt like the guiding spirit of it was, was Eliot's classic poem, The Wasteland. The way he wrote about, about spiritual ennui and decay fits Mordor really well. Here is no water but only rock. Rock and no water and the sandy road. The road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock. Dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit. Here one can neither stand, nor lie, nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. Tolkien practically ripped that word for word. All the hobbits have to keep them going is the lembos, the waybread from the elves. And it actually works better when it isn't mixed with other food, Tolkien writes, because it's on a, it's on a whole other level. It's a little slice of heaven with this magic potency that binds their wills together, keeps them going. But, as Sam thinks, it doesn't satisfy desire. It's not the kind of food you think about and look forward to, get hungry for. It fills him with memories of meat and potatoes, the stuff of home. That's what he wants, 
And remember, the ring preys on what you want. Frodo, though? He can't remember any of it. Sam decides that the only way they're going to make it across the desert to Mount Doom is by lightening the load. Get rid of everything they don't absolutely need. It's also his way of acknowledging they probably won't make it back. Well, we shan't need much on this road, Frodo says, and at its end, nothing. For Bilbo, the road was this, this symbol of comfort, perfect harmony, there and back again, a big circle. For Frodo, at least at this point, the road seems like a one-way ticket to annihilation, stripping him of worldly things and leaving his spirit naked and defenseless. This is his only defiance. We're not going to pretend to be orcs anymore, he says. We are what we are. But they also have to give up Sam's kitchen gear, and that's heartbreaking. That connection to home and identity, something he could use practically, stick up for life in defiance of death. And that little bit where Tolkien describes the, the clatter of his precious pans as they go down into the dark, ooh, ooh, that gets me, especially the description of, of precious. Like, I'm not a materialist guy in general. I think we sometimes attach too much to possessions, but... This is kind of the opposite of the attachment to the ring, the way the ring is always described as precious. But that's a contrast with the pans here being described as precious. This, this means something. It's like we're losing a friend, like when Gandalf fell down an even deeper hole. And Sam connects it to the last time he used that cooking equipment. In Athelion, when they had that bite of rabbit, they saw the Oliphant ran into Faramir. Athelion was their last connection to the world of the living, the last time they really saw green growing things. And Frodo genuinely doesn't remember it or anything else. The whole world is Mordor now. It got under his skin and inside his head. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I'm naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. And that is just some of the best prose in the whole story. As I've said before, George R. R. Martin was clearly borrowing from it for Beric Dondarrion's big sorrowful monologue in A Storm of Swords about, are you my mother Thoros? Because I, I can't remember my life before it all fades. Who knighted me? What were my favorite foods? It's really the exact same thing. It's that, that same sorrow of, of martyrdom and, and self-sacrifice. And even though they're, they're making these tough choices that you want them to make, that you want to think you'd be able to make for the people you love and care about, it's, it's genuinely horrible to witness. And there's that same poetic rhythm to it, just like Barrick's big speeches. The West Frodo says that no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree. It's a, it's a piece of art. It's a piece of poetry in its own right. All Frodo wants now is the ring. And I love how even as Sam asks if he can help share it, help share the load, he knows it's a bad idea, that it might do more harm than good. But what else can he do? Sam is driven by pity, like Frodo is for Gollum. And this is what finally gets Frodo to react and, you know, open his eyes and move and raise his voice, defending the ring from Sam the thief who would dare take it. And as he says, that's not really what he thinks. It's not really what he believes. He just, he really can't help it at this point. And that's what makes it so horrible. As they head towards Mount Doom, Sam is increasingly tortured by the memory of water. So it's not any easier for him. As horrible as it is for Frodo to not be able to remember water, at least he can't remember it. Sam is thinking about it constantly. This, this intense, vivid imagery, the colors. Again, everything he's missing, everything that's absent from Mordor. As they get closer to the mountain, Frodo passes out, and Sam starts to argue with himself, as he's done in previous chapters, just like Gollum used to do. And I love how this goes when Sam realizes, oh wait, I don't, I don't know on a practical level what it is we're actually supposed to do when we get there, like where we're supposed to go and find the cracks of doom, whatever those are. It was always just about having the will to get there. He's been so focused on that and avoiding obstacles that he never had to think about this step. 
which makes sense. You know, it'll, t it'll take care of itself. We have so many other things to focus on until we don't. At this point, Sam's inner monologue tells him to despair. Finishing the quest is impossible because Sam doesn't even know what the quest actually is. But he'll do it anyway. Even if it breaks both his back and his heart, he says. A great turn of phrase, and both pretty much do come true. It's such a powerful moment that even Mount Doom reacts. Like suddenly the, the mountain th thunders uneasily, Tolkien writes. Like Sam's argument is happening on a geological level. Or like all of this is in his head. That Mordor isn't even a physical space so much as a, as a representation of this inner crisis. So they make their, their last march on the mountain, and Tolkien just throws every possible obstacle in their path, not just the broken land, not only the lack of water, but also fumes that make them dizzy. Mordor is very specifically an industrial hell. It's like a factory grown to the size of a country, and all of that will come back in the scouring of the Shire. Soon, everything vanishes from sight but the mountain, filling up the sky, a huge mass of ash and slag and burned stone, Tolkien writes. This is their dragon. This is their Smaug. Only they've come to lose a treasure, rather than find one like Bilbo did. They're offering up a sacrifice to the beast. All of the hazards and perils were drawing together to a point, Tolkien writes. And you can really feel that. The momentum of everything coming together. This far-flung story that's followed dozens of characters crisscrossing a continent. So many sights and sounds. All of it hinges on this. Like Aragorn said towards the end of Book 5, we've come to the point where hope and despair are akin. Sam holds Frodo to keep him warm, to comfort him through that last night. You can look at this as platonic, you can look at this as romantic. The point is that they're, they're acting like one person, one soul. Sam even carries Frodo up the hill. You could see it as, as one soldier helping another. It's a great wartime image, but it's also a very potent Christian image. Only one set of footprints on Mount Doom. Two if you count Gollum. Frodo, it turns out, is light enough to carry. The opposite of what Sam would have suspected. He thought he might be too weak, that the ring would add a burden, but he doesn't feel it that way. And that's really interesting, that the physical burden of the ring might only exist for Frodo at this point. It might not be a, a literal, tangible thing. It's in his head. It's a, it's a matter of perception. And while it's good, because Sam can carry Frodo up the hill, it's really not good, if you think about it, that Frodo is so light, that he's, he's emptied out by the ring and, and all he's gone through. And Sam thinks of an, another comparison to the Shire at this point. It's, it's, like, it's like we're just playing piggyback in the Shire. That's how easy this is. The best place in the world and the worst place in the world. Blurring into one, as they will towards the end of the book. How much farther, Frodo asks. I don't know, Sam says, because I don't know where we're going. The quest has become divorced from the goal. It's all about the will to keep going. And yet, in this moment, Sam realizes they've beaten the mountain. It wasn't so tall after all. And now Sam suddenly sees there's been a road the whole time. They're above the shadow. They can see now. It's a glimmer of hope. I love that Sam says the road might have been put there for him. Like the light and water that seemed to be sent by Galadriel as an answered prayer in the previous chapter. Only for Tolkien to jump in and say, no, Sam, idiot, it wasn't built for you. It was built for Sauron. Who else? This is his mountain, his land, and now his path. Frodo must literally walk the path of his enemy to defeat him because everything here belongs to him. Tolkien pulls back the camera and delivers his signature horror heavy metal imagery, telling us about how this path begins as a vast bridge of iron over a deep abyss outside the Dark Tower. The door into Mount Doom looks right back at the Chamber of the Eye. Then we zoom back in on Frodo as that eye finds him. Almost all of this chapter is told from Sam's POV, but this is the one exception. We go inside Frodo's head for this. The clouds around the Dark Tower move aside. 
Maybe because of wind, Tolkien writes, but more likely because of the great disquiet within. Sauron's angst and paranoia literally affecting the weather and exposing himself. We only see the eye for a heartbeat. That's all we need. Red light stabbing, Tolkien writes, like it's a sword. A gaze that's pure power. A gaze that can hurt you. He's not even looking at Frodo. Sauron is looking north at Aragorn and Gandalf. But that doesn't matter because it's enough to activate the ring. That's the real danger. The eye isn't going to see him because the eye isn't looking. But the ring calls to Frodo, pulling his hand. He has to call out to Sam to stop him. It's a chilling portrait of possession, this usurpation of Frodo's will, against which he is genuinely helpless and needs Sam to save him. Salvation is the right word for it. Sam gently removes Frodo's hand from his chest and holds his palms together. And that sounds a lot like they're praying, implying that Sam is redeeming Frodo in a spiritual sense. That image of Frodo just sitting there, his hands twitching, his head between his legs. He looks like a worn-out soldier or a suffering addict. It's both. They come together so powerfully in what happens next. Finally, Gollum attacks. Talk about the rule of three. He attacked the hobbits when they first came together in the MMUEL at the start of Book 4. Then they made a peace, temporarily at least. Then he attacked them again in Shelob's lair, after which point the dream team broke apart violently. Since then, Gollum has been hunting them, just like he did in the MMUEL, only now everything is elevated. Not just because they're in Mordor and the stakes are higher, but because they have this personal history of trust and betrayal. It's not even about how Bilbo stole Gollum's precious anymore, because now Gollum is as much a part of this story as the Hobbit, even more so at this point. It's about Wicked Master, as Gollum calls Frodo, just like he said when Frodo turned him over to Faramir in Book 4. Gollum feels betrayed by the Hobbits, not the other way around. Now, before you point out the whole he led them into the lair of a giant spider thing, keep in mind that Gollum didn't know they were going to destroy the ring. They didn't tell him that for a reason. Because as soon as he found that out, that's the end of all the tricks and games and split personalities. That would make them his enemy. Permanently. Now Gollum knows why they never told him why they needed so desperately to get inside Mordor. It was to destroy the only source of meaning in his life. The point isn't that this cancels out Gollum's multiple attempts to kill them. The point is that there was no way this was ever going to end well. The ring tears Frodo and Gollum apart, but it also binds them together. It's something they have in common. As Tolkien writes, Gollum's attempt to take the ring is the only thing that could have roused Frodo from his nearly catatonic state, what the author describes as the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will, fitting the fire imagery of this chapter. It only works because Gollum is in really bad shape, even by his standards. Tolkien describes him like a famine victim. Lean, starved, haggard, he writes, driven by a devouring desire. Not just a desire, but a devouring desire. He's reduced to bones and tight-drawn sallow skin. He's been walking, quote, dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless. The same paths they've been walking, both literally and metaphorically. What really stood out to me on this read, though, is that Tolkien writes Gollum is motivated by a terrible fear. The fear he'll never get the precious back. It's kept him alive all these years. Without it, he's dying, just like Bilbo. I mentioned their initial confrontation in the MMUEL earlier, and now Tolkien makes the connection explicit. Just like back in Book 4, Sam suddenly sees Frodo and Gollum with what the author describes as other vision. Like Sam is wearing the ring. 
This is how Tolkien described it back in Book 4. For a moment it appeared to Sam that his master had grown, and Gollum had shrunk. A tall, stern shadow, a mighty lord who hid his brightness in gray cloud, and at his feet, a little whining dog. Yet the two were in some way akin, and not alien. They could reach one another's minds. Same deal here. Sam is seeing Frodo and Gollum on an emotional or even spiritual plane, as archetypal figures made of elements rather than flesh and bone. Gollum is no more than a shadow now, defeated, Tolkien writes, by both Frodo's possession of the ring and also the ring itself. Yet his lust for it remains. In contrast to that lust and rage is Frodo's sternness, as the author describes it, untouchable now by the pity that led Frodo to keep Gollum around back in that initial meeting. So instead, it's Sam who has to show pity and mercy for Gollum. One last time. He draws his sword, ready for battle, but there's no fight in Gollum. He begs for his life, what little of it he has left. Lost, lost, he cries. We're lost. Doesn't that just sum up Gollum? No matter where he goes, he's lost. There is no shire for him. No home and hearth waiting at the end of the quest like there is for Sam. The ring took it all away. Gollum cries he'll go to dust, clawing it all up. Dust. It's an intense reckoning with mortality, how everything on this earth, even precious things, fall into ruin. And again, I think of the wasteland, probably my favorite passage from it. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images, where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only, there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you, or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. And that is literally what Gollum does for Sam here. Honestly, what can Sam do to him that's worse than that? If Gollum has accepted death, all Sam can do now is make his suffering worse, and he can't do it. I love the clarity with which Tolkien writes this. Sam still hates Gollum, more than ever. He still believes that Gollum has it coming, and that killing him would be the only practical way to keep Frodo safe. As we see, Gollum has not in fact accepted death, he still wants the precious back and he will fight Frodo for it. But as Frodo said back in the Emmy Muiel, what Gollum has done, and what he means to do, are two different things. In the moment, here's Sam with his sword drawn, staring down at someone who is forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched, as Tolkien writes. And it works out just like Bilbo and the Hobbit. When Bilbo was invisible, he had the ring on, Gollum was in his way, he was thinking, I should just strike this monster down, move on with my life. And then he thinks, Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him, or tried to yet, and he was miserable, alone, lost. There's that word again, lost. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment. Hard stone, cold fish, sneaking, and whispering. And what Sam thinks here in Lord of the Rings is, now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. It's basically the same thing. For Sam, though, this empathy is even more potent, because, as Tolkien writes, Sam briefly bore the ring. And unlike Bilbo at that point in The Hobbit, Sam knows what the ring does to you. Sam, though, he, he can't find a way to express it in words. Partially, that's just good old Sam. He's never as eloquent as old Master Bilbo. But it's also because what he's feeling is genuinely inexpressible. And that's a powerful idea for Tolkien especially. He loved language so much. Even so, 
He knew. Some things are just beyond words. Same goes for Sam's love for Frodo, which leads him now to pursue his master and turn his back on Gollum, allowing Gollum to turn as well after going like five steps down the path and start hunting them again. Sam follows Frodo into literal doom, like he's been doing all along. And the land holds its breath. There's this, this great passage, far away now, rising towards the south, the sun, piercing the smokes and haze, burned ominous, a dull, bleared disc of red. But all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. As for Sam, he's lost in the darkness. He pulls out Galadriel's little file of light. I mean, that worked in Shelob's lair. It worked at the Tower of Kirith but it does not work here. Tolkien writes, he was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron, and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers were here subdued. It's the heart of power itself, a new age pumping itself into existence, one which will erase the light of the old one. Tolkien compares the rumble of the volcanic activity to the throbbing of some great engine. Again, he's always linking the villains to industrialization, this rigid control that marks the death of the natural world. Then there's this flash of red, Tolkien writes, and Sam can see the high black roof. It's just like the scene in Revenge of the Sith that I recently covered with Luke for all our $5 and above patrons. The, the duel on Mustafar between Anakin and Obi-Wan, which George Lucas says he always had in mind is this almost monochrome black and red. I wouldn't be surprised if he was maybe unintentionally inspired by this. Just like Anakin, Frodo is now falling from grace. Immediately, you can tell something's wrong. He's tense and erect, Tolkien writes, stronger than he was before. Kind of too strong. He's gone from withering and collapsing to being turned to stone, as the author writes. And when Frodo speaks, it's not only more powerful than it has been recently. Sam thinks Frodo is speaking clearer than he ever has, even back in the Shire. There is no conflict here. No uncertainty. No doubt. Frodo is as sure of this as he has ever been of anything. And what he's sure of is that the ring is his. This is perhaps the defining moment of The Lord of the Rings. It's Tolkien's major moral statement, it's the culmination of Frodo's character arc, and it is still emotionally cathartic to this day, many long decades after the books came out. What makes it work so well is that it is both a shocking subversion of your expectations and also the most heavily foreshadowed thing imaginable. It's a lot like The Red Wedding, which only seems to come out of nowhere the first time you read A Storm of Swords. On reread, as I've been covering with Manu, George R. R. Martin is sitting it up in practically every chapter, both logistically and in terms of tone and imagery. Along the same lines, Tolkien has been clearly showing us Frodo surrendering to the ring for quite a while now, especially here in Book 6. It's dominating his thoughts, it's eating away at his physical strength, and when someone tries to take it from him, Frodo freaks the fuck out regardless of whether that someone is Sam or Gollum. So, yeah, naturally, he doesn't want to actually destroy it. He's practically been telling us that. He told Sam that he'd go mad if anyone took it away, and that includes himself. That fits with everything we know about the ring. Think about how Bilbo only just barely gave it up. If Gandalf hadn't insisted and kind of intimidated him, Bilbo would have kept it. And as Sam thought earlier, Gandalf isn't here to help them do the right thing this time. It's only them. Or think about Isildur, who fought a war against Sauron, who lost his brother and his father to Sauron, and yet Sauron's ring became precious to him. Above all, though, think about Gollum, the face Frodo sees staring back at him in the mirror. Gollum was once a hobbit, or something resembling a hobbit. He once loved the trees and the water and the smell of fresh air. And now he doesn't even remember those things, 
just like Frodo. As Gandalf said, Gollum hates the ring as much as he loves it. He's an addict, but he's not a fool. He knows that the ring has destroyed his life. But that doesn't matter, because its hold on him is simply too strong. Same for Frodo. And yet, the way Tolkien structures his story, you don't necessarily see this coming, because you assume Frodo will succeed. He'll, he'll be an exception like Tom Bombadil. He's not. After all that, all the work of getting here, all the sacrifice and struggle, all the despair and doubt, all the thousands of words J.R. Tolkien has spilled, we arrive at the moment of choice. And Frodo chooses the ring over Sam, all his friends, and Middle-earth itself. It is absolutely devastating. My heart still stutters reading it, even after so many times through the story. It breaks your heart, because it's supposed to. But I wouldn't go so far as to call it nihilistic, and Tolkien himself argued that it's too simplistic to say that Frodo failed. In a 1963 letter to a reader, Mrs. Eileen Elgar, Tolkien wrote, We are finite creatures with absolute limitations upon the powers of our soul-body structure in either action or endurance. Moral failure can only be asserted, I think, when a man's effort or endurance falls short of his limits, and the blame decreases as that limit is closer approached. The pressure of the ring, Tolkien wrote, would reach a maximum, impossible, I should say, for anyone to resist. Frodo undertook his quest out of love, to save the world he knew from disaster at his own expense, if he could, and also in complete humility acknowledging that he was wholly inadequate to the task. His real contract was only to do what he could, to try to find a way, and to go as far on the road as his strength of mind and body allowed. He did that. Tolkien scholar John Garth compared Frodo to the veterans of World War I, quoting a London Times reporter from 1915 describing how soldiers suffering from shell shock may, quote, become blind or deaf or lose the sense of smell or taste. He is cut off from his normal self and the associations that make up that self. That is exactly what happened to Frodo. Tolkien saw this happen in real life to his own generation. We are fragile. We can only take so much of the horrors of war. And the man breaks, as George R. R. Martin wrote. It's in this moment, when Frodo surrenders to the same power that claimed Gollum, that Gollum himself springs forward to take the stage, knocking Sam down. Then Tolkien zooms out from this intimate standoff, back to the Great Eye and its throne atop the world, back to Sauron. And there's another immense catharsis here as the Dark Lord finally realizes what's actually been going on in the story named after him. He's been tricked because he thought the big tall man with the shiny hero sword must be his primary opponent. He would never have looked twice at the hobbits. And that's why it worked. As pissed off as Sauron is, he's also afraid. Because for the first time in thousands of years, he can taste his own mortality. Gandalf called Sauron a wise fool back in Book 3, and now we see both sides of that coin in action. Sauron was focused on all these policies, Tolkien writes, these stratagems, webs of fear and treachery, the author writes, that he's spinning webs like Shelob. And suddenly, all of that subtle complexity collapses in on itself. And no one in Mordor knows what to do, because it was only Sauron's will that sustained them. This is the blowback of tyranny. When you're the only one who can make decisions, no one can help you when it turns out your decisions were the wrong ones. Only the ringwraiths can respond, and so we get this last bit of suspense as they fly towards Mount Doom to reclaim the ring. Sam wakes up and sees something so weird you could forgive him for wondering if he's still asleep and dreaming. Gollum is fighting something invisible. Literally speaking, it's Frodo, of course. But metaphorically, he's fighting with the power of the ring. 
that power is invisible. The ring itself, unlike Sauron, has no dark towers, no orc armies. It works on your inside, where no one can see it. Frodo only becomes visible when Gollum bites his finger off. Something so hideous and vulnerable it still makes me flinch. It's one final link between Frodo and Sauron. The Dark Lord lost a finger to Isildur, his successor ring bearer, and now Frodo loses a finger to Gollum, along with the ring. For like, five seconds anyway. Gollum is the happiest he's ever been, and then he trips and falls and dies, taking the precious with him. The accidental nature of this throws some people off, especially relative to how the movies handle it, which I'll get to in a bit. It might come off as goofy. Really? The world is saved because Gollum didn't look where he was going? That's it? But it was a deliberate choice on Tolkien's part that no one made a deliberate choice to get rid of the ring. It's a spiritual statement on the author's part, rooted in his Christian beliefs. None of us can achieve salvation on our own. We are humbled before our own frailty. Call it destiny, call it fate, call it God, call it luck. It's an acknowledgement that there are factors at work beyond our own choices. That's how this fictional universe works. That's the logic with which it was created. Eru Iluvatar, the creator of heaven and earth, brought existence into being as a song. Melkor, aka Morgoth, the fallen angel Lucifer figure who was Sauron's boss back in the day, introduced discord into the song as a form of rebellion against God. But then, Iluvatar resolved the discord into harmony with his song. That was his plan all along, which is what really pisses Melkor off. Same here, with the great irony that Gollum is the one who fulfills the quest. As Frodo admits, Gandalf was right all along when he said that Bilbo's pity and mercy may rule the fate of many, that Gollum would have a role to play. Even with his malign intentions, he led them to Mordor when they would otherwise have failed at the Black Gate. And now he has destroyed the ring albeit accidentally, where Frodo could not. So let us forgive him, Frodo says. A beautiful gesture. So the One Ring is destroyed. And so too is Sauron the Great, Lord of the Rings. Sam steps outside and Tolkien writes that it's like he's been turned to stone, just like he described Frodo a second ago. But Frodo was contemplating his surrender to the ring. Sam is bearing witness to the opposite, its downfall. It's a sight of wonder and terror, the author writes, a phrase George R. R. Martin borrowed, and for good reason. This might be the greatest of all of Tolkien's big sweeping descriptions, and I just gotta read it. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it towers and battlements, tall as hills founded upon a mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits, great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons sheer as cliffs, and gaping gates of steel and adamant, and then all passed. Towers fell and mountains slid, walls crumbled and melted, crashing down, vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave, and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And then at last, over the miles between, there came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and Orogerin reeled. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder, seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain. And into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, shooting like flaming bolts. As caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky, they crackled, withered, and went out. Oh, that's so good. 
We haven't really seen Merindor, the Dark Tower, up to this point. I mean, we've seen bits and pieces of it, but it's almost always covered by cloud. And the sense you get of it is that it's almost too big to make sense. Like it's an M.C. Escher portrait or something. Like it's it's abstract, weird, almost Lovecraftian. It's supposed to be beyond your reality. It's It's so huge, all hope would leave you just looking at it. This is the first time we get this full glimpse of it, and then it's gone. We get to watch it explode, and we get to watch the Nazgul who have been hunting us down and making us afraid of the whole story. We watch them go out. It's it's so cathartic. I feel a tingle sweeping up my spine when I read that, this smile spreading across my face. It's release. It's relief. It's the sensation we fight for so hard in our adult lives. It's going to be okay. It really, really is. Those powers that seemed so terrible and unbeatable are gone, like they were never there. Frodo lost, but he also won. In this moment, Tolkien writes, peace has returned to his eyes. The burden has lifted. Frodo wins no great treasures from his quest. He doesn't come home with a shiny sword or a beautiful maiden on his arm. What he gets is himself, back again. As he was in the Shire, Tolkien writes, the memories, the identity he thought he had lost forever. And Sam feels such joy that it doesn't even matter that the world seems to be ending around them. And that's something I feel myself, something I try to feel, something I try to access as the the state of the world gets grimmer and grimmer with each passing day. I, I feel ever more the value of having people I love close to me. I think of this line towards the very end of The Greatest Novel Ever Written, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. After all the insane, horrible, beautiful, psychedelic bullshit in that novel, we get to the very end and there's this line, there is time if you need the comfort to touch the person next to you. So simple, so effective, and that's what we're left with with Frodo and Sam here. Hold on to those close to you, here, at the end of all things. So, I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations that came out from Peter Jackson and company about 20 years ago, and how they handle each stretch of the material. And this is definitely one of my favorite parts of the adaptation. You get that important ticking clock element from the books that were out of water, Sam acknowledging there is no return trip or not going back. We get that bit where Frodo collapses in the face of the eye. Like I said before, I, I find the, the very literal eye of, of the movies, especially Two Towers and Return of the King, a little goofy sometimes. But this works for me, especially because we kind of see it mostly as a light in the distance. And there's that thumping kind of heartbeat and then the slow-mo as Frodo falls. Very creepy, very effective. And as I've said before, one advantage the movies have, I mean, it's sometimes a disadvantage, but overall I think an advantage is that they're constantly cross-cutting between what's going on with Frodo and Sam and what's going on with everybody else. That's not how it works in the books. They are kind of segregated off in their specific books, but here we're constantly cross-cutting and there's some really interesting and powerful parallels that can crop up. Like, you know, most famously at the end of The Two Towers when we see Sam's big speech overlaid with what's going on with everyone else, but really effective here when we see Legolas and Gimli talking about, you know, dying alongside a friend at the Black Gate. And that's exactly what we're seeing with Frodo and Sam. We see them fight orcs and trolls and everyone else at the Black Gate at the same time Frodo was fighting Gollum on Mount Doom. And we get that, that beautiful moment, probably my favorite moment in, in Return of the King, the movie, where, where Sam looks down at Frodo with the hot tear sting in his eyes and just says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. So beautiful. And it's, it's, uh, it's tighter than what he says in the books, which is, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. Good move in the movie, cut off the and it as well, make it much tighter. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. It reminds me of the scene in Game of Thrones, Tyrion's trial in season four, where in the books, what he says is, uh, I wish I was the monster you would have me be, but there it is, or something like that. It's a little clunky. 
And in the, in the show, he just has the perfect line that Peter Dinklage tears into, I wish I was the monster you think I am. Moments where the adaptation is great because it, it makes for a more concise and emotional, punchy line. Everyone remembers that moment in the movie of Return of the King, for good reason. The movies don't include that that uh, that extended little confrontation between Gollum and Frodo on the way of the path, which I think makes sense. You know, I think the, the very kind of the, the imagery there, the kind of abstract metaphorical stuff going on, the spiritual stuff going on would not necessarily translate to the movie very well. You got, you got to think about your medium. Same thing with the actual cracks of doom themselves. It's much more of a crack in the book. It's this little tunnel instead of the, the, the giant cavern that like, Mount Doom is basically hollow in the cone that we see in the movies. It's much more dramatic, much more visually effective. And this is a case where the earlier work in the movies really pays off because we had that whole extended prologue in the first movie and then Elrond flashed back to it where he was trying to urge Isildur to throw the ring into the fire. This scene with Frodo and Sam is shot almost identically to that in terms of uh, the placement of the camera, the compositions, the close-ups, very, very similar. And that's supposed to, that's deliberate. It's supposed to make you remember that earlier scene and feel like, oh, this, this loop of history, we've come around again to this scene and the same decision is being made. We get Sam's big no, which is not something he gets to do in the books. He like he gasps and then Gollum knocks him out. Here he gets, Sean Astin gets to deliver the big climactic no. And it's very cinematic. We see the lights flickering all over Frodo's face. And then we get the Frodo-Gollum fight. Which, and here's the big change in the adaptation in the movies. Instead of just Gollum tripping and falling, Frodo uh, pushes Gollum over the edge along with himself and just barely catches hold of the cliff. And that is different. And that is, it's it's not quite the same you know, divine intervention, power of chance theme you see in the book. I get being annoyed by that change in the way that a lot of the changes in adaptation are to make it more punchy and actiony. If you're really into the tone of the books, I could see why that could grate on you. But I think it's it's very effective. It's different, but equally effective because it it shows Frodo's kind of heedless anger and lust for the ring in this moment that in that moment he is willing to die for the ring. And that's kind of the, the choice he makes. And then Sam has to kind of literally and metaphorically drag him out of that pull him out of that choice sam pulls him up and out as the ring melts and you see Gollum die along with it and there's that look on his face like he's not even Gollum isn't even sad that he's dying it's that the ring is dying that's what really gets him and that's that's exactly the mindset frodo needs to save himself from and we get to see the uh, the the collapse of the dark tower from below that 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 beautiful slow motion shot we're like right up the dark tower like it's like we're looking up the monolith in 2001 and i love again even though the eye is kind of goofy i do love it that it just it just explodes we see it go out the same way that uh, uh tolkien des- describes the ring race in the novel that that is that is beautiful and then we see them there on the volcano collapsing all around them and, and frodo says i can see the shire he has that back he doesn't get to live in the shire it was saved but not for me as he'll say later but he gets his memories of it, his, his identity, his soul. He gets the ability to, to feel that closeness to Sam as they hold each other at the end of all things. So that is going to wrap us up for this month with The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for your support every month. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can reach out to us via email at notacastasoif at gmail.com or follow us at notacastasoif on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter. Next up in A Song of Ice and Fire, we have our friend Michal coming back on the show for A Storm of Swords, Jamie Six, the chapter with his uh, fever dream and rescuing Brian from the bear pit. Then I'm going to be jumping uh, back into Star Wars, my last episode on Revenge of the Sith. For all our $5 and above patrons, will be the week after that. And like I said, up top, there is not going to be a new Lord of the Rings episode next month. So I will check in with you next in Lord of the Rings with uh, Book 6, Chapter 4, The Field of Cormallon, towards the end of May. So thank you again for listening, and I will see you in a couple months for more Lord of the Rings.